Welcome to the Silicon UK in Focus podcast. Silicon UK is the leading source of IT news, analyst features, and interviews covering the technology that impacts your business. I'm your host, David Howell, the Editor-in-Chief here at Silicon UK. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Sertucci, the Professor of Digital Strategy and Innovation at Imperial College Business School. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us, uh, Chris. This month across uh, all of uh, Silver Silicon UK, we're looking at really what connectivity means for businesses, for anyone that's connected with tech, like that kind of thing. So we're trying to figure out what that actually means. What does connectivity mean? We're talking about businesses trying to connect with their customers and with other businesses in the B2B space. But I was interested to get you on because you're talking about connected business from your perspective. But before we do that, what's your background, Chris? Uh, I say you're sort of professional digital strategy and innovation. What are you doing previously? Was that something that you do at your always got into or are you going to be one of these people that was in a completely different field and moved over okay actually no i've been in the sort of the information technology space for uh-huh. for 40 something years originally i was working in computer science research right and yeah. worked on internetworking specifically different kinds of internet protocols that we continue to use now and then what happened is i got interested in how the company that i was working for was funding their research and development so i got interested in technology policy and things like this. And I ended up going to study technology and policy and then doing a PhD in management of technological innovation. And when I was there, one of my professors said, you should study private companies. You can do policy when you're old. Okay, yeah, why not? I'm I'm interested in software technology. I'm interested in internet. So I started studying rather than the government funding these consortia and things like this, I started doing interviews with people in industry on adoption of collaborative R&D ventures and things like that. So that's what got me there. And then eventually I became professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at New York University Stern School of Business. And from there, I moved to EPFL, which is the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, Switzerland. And I was there for 17 years. And again, my chair title was called Corporate Strategy and Innovation. So always working in the innovation management space on sabbatical at Imperial. And then I managed to get a full-time offer from Imperial College. And so I've been delighted to be here for the last two and a half years or so, full-time on digital strategy and innovation and working on a whole bunch of other things, uh, which we can discuss later. Absolutely. Yeah. You're uh, obviously a very good fit. I think for this conversation, we're talking about sort of connection and how connected businesses, what that means today. And I wanted to kick this conversation off with your perspective and with your background and what you've seen over the past couple of years. Are we defining connected businesses very differently than we did literally a couple of, literally just a couple of years ago? There's more connectivity now, but I don't think we're thinking about, at least from my point of view, I don't Mm. think we're thinking of it that differently now. I think in the past, even maybe 2007, I was already working on papers on what we called inter-networking at the time, which Mm. was basically how do you connect your company to your customers, to your suppliers? How are you using inter-networking inside your company to improve your efficiency? And what kinds of new products and services can you develop? So I think that part is really... The same. The only thing that's got better is over time, the technology's got a lot better. And so we were actually able to reach more people. We're actually to connect more with these different constituencies in our ecosystems. And I think what's becoming slightly different now, the efficiency level of having more like machine to machine communication. I think that's 
probably the biggest change in the last 15 years or so is just the bandwidth for data and things like this has increased enormously. And so that's allowing more type internet of things type things, which we always had, and we had robotics and automation, but now we more connected and smart sensor, I would say. And then that, I hope, I think, is going to lead to new business models at some point in the future. So I would say the connectivity concept is the same, but maybe the technology's improved to the point where we're adding a new class of connectivity where there wasn't before so much. From my point of view, it seems that businesses are trying to understand the landscape they're in, how they connect with their customers, and if they're in the B2B space with their commercial partners. I mean, for them, when you're actually speaking to the business, are they getting a good handle on that? Can they see wood for the trees? Or are they just swimming in data and swimming in connectivity? When trying to make sense of that is the challenge at the moment. Yes, <laughs> I think yeah, exactly, exactly spot on when I'm meeting with companies or talking industry events and things like this. There are some sort of leaders that are quite well advanced. And then there are many more that are, as you say, swimming in data and trying to figure out where to get going. And there's also a smaller but sizable group of companies that are just waiting to see what's going to happen before they do anything. In That's interesting, Chris, because I've had lots of conversations like that where a lot of businesses are on the fence. They can see how things are rapidly changing. We have to do something. But the anxiety right. and the paralysis is we just don't know what yes. to do. What should we do first? Where should we go and improve our connectivity, our CX and all the rest of it? And that paralysis keeps them on the fence and then the business never moves forward. Yeah, that, That's where a lot of business seem to me to be waiting and seeing instead of doing. It's actually worse than that even in the sense. <laughs> that, wow, that it's, let's hope it's, not. It's, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not like waiting is costless. Waiting seems costless because you don't, you're not making the investments yep. at that point. So you're not yep. spending money. Indeed. But the problem is that if your competitors are making the investments, then they're probably becoming more efficient because of automation and, and whatever else. And then that's going to put you in a bad position a year's time or a couple years time. You're actually, your competitive positioning keeps getting worse and worse the longer that you delay when you say when you're paralyzed. And I think that's exactly the sentiment that a lot of people will talk about. They say, yeah, gee, I don't know what to do and I don't know where to start. And I don't know, I'm not sure what I should invest in, but I know that I should do something digital, which is what my board is saying, do something digital. And that's okay, but the point is if you wait too long on that, then you might end up in a bad cost position, you know, which might be okay in some rare circumstances when you're doing very high-end stuff. And But on, for most of the time, the other companies are scaling up and you're not, and then, they're making predictions and you're not. And sooner or later, they're going to get better and better at that. And you're going to be starting from scratch. So I think that's the part that worries me a bit about this last group of people that haven't done anything yet. I always relate that back to Microsoft and the internet, how late to the table they were and what impact that had on them. Similar to where we are now, we're seeing lots of new communications technology, you know, 5G's here, IoT's coming and all the rest of it. And if you don't have some kind of strategic plan to move forward, then you're going to do a Microsoft. You're going to be left behind, guys. You have to do something. So when you're speaking to business leaders, where we are, what actual marketplace we are in, what's our journey, what's the end game we want to get to? And let's not worry about the tools yet. Let's not worry about buying stuff. Let's think about business culture. Let's think about how we need to change as a business to get there. I completely agree. People talk about digital transformation. I think that's one of the key principles, I would say is that there's going to require some rethinking on the strategy end and on the sort of culture side and adoption and stakeholder management inside a company. Yep. Just to get to your story about Microsoft, which I think is a really interesting one, 
and I've actually studied it a lot, they at least had a monopoly in their market. So at least in the operating system market, if it's in packaged software, they still had this pretty big buffer. Now, not many companies are in their kind of position where they have the, what we call it a complementary asset. Not many companies are in that same really nice position that you can afford to be so late to the game and still come back and do well. So I would say that this digital transformation exercise is something that's worth thinking about relatively soon if there hasn't been anything done in it. And again, yes, the cultural angle and the people angle on it is a lot of people found to be more important and more difficult to change than the technological angle on this whole thing. I think that's right, Chris. I think the mistake is focusing on the tech, oddly enough. We want to transform. We want to use technology to do that. But Actually, focusing on the tech too much, that's where the paralysis comes because, I don't know, you look at, say, the collaboration app space, there are dozens and dozens of applications which you could choose from. And that's where the paralysis comes. Which one should we use? We don't want to make an investment and that might end up being a bit of a white white elephant. So we never do anything and we, we just stay as we are. But I think if you take a step back and you start looking at your business and looking at your marketplace and talking to your, as you say, your employees, talking to your customers, it seems to me that will inform your strategy. That will then give you the insights you need to go and look for a collaboration tool or to go and look for a new cloud hosting, whatever, wherever you need. Those are the people that are going to give you the feedback, it seems to me. Those are the people that will allow you to formulate a strategy which you can move forward with. I agree. And that's an excellent example, actually, collaboration software. You need to get the employees to buy into this. If you go ahead and get something in there, so you say, I'm going to adopt new technology, and then nobody uses it, which happens. (laughs) It actually happened on a case that I was studying, and I say a very big pharmaceutical company. And there was a possibility for them to save multiple, let's just say billions of pounds. You'd think that this would be a pretty interesting tool that they could adopt. But the fact is that the people who are supposed to use the tool refuse to use the tool. Okay. And I think part of it is because as they always say, best practice in digital transformation is you've got to address employees' fears of redundancy head on. You need to tackle it straight away and you have to think about it and get it out in the, or else you might find yourself being undermined or sabotaged because people don't want to necessarily change for something that they think they might put them out of a job. In this particular case that I'm referring to, I guess it's conceivable that it could have been automated to the level where they would have been out of a job. That wasn't the case. That wasn't necessarily the tool that was on the table. You could see it maybe in the future. But I think that's the tricky part there is it's not going and addressing this sort of fear of automation and fear of redundancy you know, amongst the employees and other internal stakeholders. I think that's part of the equation. Absolutely. It also seems to me that businesses had a good look at, I guess, what's happened in the last couple of years. This mass remote working thing, people using dozens of apps at home, app overload, let's just give them another one to use. And then people just, enough's enough. We can't be doing that. And I think a lot of businesses are collapsing that down to the core of what we need to actually run our businesses. What will people actually use? So in that respect, less is more. So I wanted to get your kind of perspective on that, that when it comes to connected businesses and strategy, actually is the whole idea of less is more, Is does that really hold water? Have a look at all your business process, all the applications you're using. Now, do you really need four different collaboration tools? Really, do you? Completely agree with you. It's extremely complex and think about the different stakeholder groups here. So you've got your employees and right now I think we're focusing on the employee experience, which I think is quite important is feeds back into the overall digital strategy of the company. What are you trying to do? And in, in many cases, having people learn multiple apps 
that even now, like even myself, I, I forget what Teams can do versus Zoom or something like this. And I get so annoyed because it's flipping back and forth all the time. Oh, yes, yeah, right. You can't share your screen over here on this or whatever. So I can completely see the, the overload mentality and how it can lead to lower productivity rather than higher productivity, especially if you have a choice. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that idea of app rage, I think is absolutely yeah. real. It's absolutely a present danger for businesses. It can lead to massive amounts of Polaris if you don't have a good handle on that. But businesses aren't talking to people about that. They're focusing on the tools and not the people that are using them, right. it seems to me. That's the reason it's not working. Grabbing a tool for a specific task, you're adding to your toolkit. And so you say, oh yeah, let's get that one. Let's get that one. So I think this is on the opposite side. These are like companies that are like trying to adopt as much technology as, but these aren't the paralyzed ones. But this can also lead to some kind of paralysis as well, if you're not careful, because I think what you want is to make a more of an integrated suite or something where people can get their job done without having to shift gears all the time between different environments. That feeds back into automation again, doesn't it? That whole idea of businesses, they went a kind of bit crazy, to be honest. Can we automate everything? Save money, reduce our payroll, et cetera, et cetera. They all tried that maybe 18 months ago, and guess what? That failed dismally because you can't automate everything. The whole idea is automation becomes a supporting technology for, guess who? Your people. And if you approach it that way, this guy, we're going to automate your job, and everyone runs for the hills, and everyone's very scared because they're going to lose their job. Actually, no, you're not. The whole idea is that piece of tech is there to support you. Take all of the, the boring stuff away. That you have to do on a daily. Let the automation do that. You do the interesting, more creative stuff, which is what humans are good at. So that idea of would you work with a robot, that kind of has to be a conversation, I feel, within businesses because that's where we're going. There will be a level of automation. But let's re-spin the argument. It becomes a supporting technology, not a replacement technology. There have been a few different studies on this. And basically, the overall summary of them is that Something like 50% of the tasks that you do can be automated. A lot of people interpreted that to mean, oh, 50% of the jobs can be eliminated. Yes. And that's actually not true. What you want to avoid is getting in the situation where you're laying off all these people and then you end up in a labor shortage because you don't have the, you know, you don't actually have the skills, the legacy skills about the business that you once had. And you've got a, you've got some automation and you've got some more digital skill, which is good, but your balance is then thrown off for the people who really understand the business end of this whole thing. So I think that you don't want to be too overzealous in this automation. Think about, indeed, what could we automate? What tasks could we automate here? And how is that going to help the people that are there in your business? I think that's a much healthier way to look at it somehow. Keep up to date with the latest tech news and read in-depth features by subscribing to the Silicon UK newsletter. Let's talk a bit more about people. Let's talk about people that buy from business, the other customers. I think it's interesting that the pandemic in particular has shifted where the power is. As a consumer, I seem to have a lot more influence over the business that I buy from than, I, than ever before in history, really. Yes, social media a couple of years ago, yeah, I could rant and rave about a bad customer journey or whatever on Twitch if I wanted to, but it didn't really have an impact. Two years later, it seems to me businesses are paying much more attention to what my journey is, how I'm actually connecting with them, and what all of those touch points actually mean, and more importantly, how they can be integrated together. Do you find that when you're when you're speaking to businesses, that kind of idea that the customer journey has changed, that's also influencing strategy? Best practice right now, I think, is to understand the customer journey and look for the points that can be digitized 
or digitalized. And so I don't know if the customer journey itself, you might say that the customer journey has changed, or maybe just that they do, people do the same things, but some of those things could actually be improved greatly because of some one little piece could just be eliminating a huge hassle. Absolutely. That's where it's paying off somehow in, in the sense of it's a combination of empathy with the customer. So trying to employ a little bit more design thinking type approaches in service design and even in product design, business model design, and then to try and use digital technologies. That's the new part, I think, to try and figure out, okay, there's something here that customers hate. Is there any way that we can improve that via digital means? And I think that's the part that's quite interesting and taking off quite a bit right now. So I, I feel like that's definitely something that, that managers are considering and they're working on directly right now. Yes, because I've had lots of conversations with sort of business leaders. And two or three years ago, they were going big guns on trying to define what the omnichannel was. How can we connect high street and our online business? How can we connect social media with our call centers, etc.? All these things were just basically sat around in silos. It just weren't connected. So how can we do that? How can we connect all of this stuff together? And I was calling it omnichannel plus, which is where we are now. And what does that mean for businesses? And what kind of tools do you need to make omnichannel plus a reality. Would you agree that actually you don't need any new tools? You just need to use the tools you've got better. There might be some tool that could be adopted, I don't know, to improve a certain element in a, for a customer. I think that could be that could be the case, but I don't think it's a matter of this massive change in technology adoption. Customers don't care about the back-end stuff. They don't care whether the call center is taking the Twitter feedback and working on it. They just want to have the rental car there at the moment that you said it was going to be there. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think this is the part where you could say, what can we do to get that part better? Well, right now, we're like sending people faxes by hand saying, hey, take this car and move it over from one station to another or something. Oh, yeah. That's great. <laughs> can we digitize this? Yes, you can. Yeah, kind of, yeah. You can definitely do that. Absolutely. I think it's interesting when businesses look at, I guess, certain touch points. And I guess the focus is uh, is mobile. We're all using mobiles to run our lives, etc. And particularly for commercial transactions. Banking has shown us how that can be personalized and how that can be very useful. All of my financial life together and run it on my phone. Now, can I do that yeah. when I want to buy a thing from a retailer? Kind of, in a way. Some are better than others, I think. Yeah, I can start my journey yeah. standing in a shop somewhere, have a look at look, sort of, then I can continue that on my mobile, and then maybe finish the journey off when I get back to my, my desktop, if that's how it works. Now, you would think that... Yeah, the internet's been around so long. We've had mobiles for a while. That would be an integrated journey that I can cross over and I can meander as much as I like as a customer and I'll still end up with hopefully a, a sale in a basket somewhere. But not really, Chris. I think a lot of businesses are still struggling to understand how what I've just described actually happens in reality. When you talk about connected business, it has to include a mobile strategy for virtually every single company. Okay, They should at least think about it and decide how they're going to interact. Now, part of the friction here, I would say, is getting the credit. And you'd be surprised. Like There are different elements of that journey that you just mentioned about the retailer and the mobile experience for the customer. And part of the friction, I think, is that who's getting credit for this awareness? Who's getting paid for this transaction when it finally occurs? Because you've built awareness because you threw a, an ad on someone's phone when they were walking down the street near, near a certain retail outlet. And then they've gone off and shopped online someplace. And then they've bought it at yet a third place. And then they're going picking it up at your store there. And so there's a certain accounting issue that I think is causing 
some degree of friction in this whole market. Whereas again, the customer doesn't care about that part. The customer just wants to shop around and buy the thing and go pick it up. So I think that's the part that has to be addressed straight away. And then how can we make this more of a seamless experience for them and then try and eliminate those internal frictions because of the marketing department wants to get credit versus the production versus its retail outlet or something like that. It's something that they should work on and then try and make a decision about and so that we have a real mobile strategy that enables the customer to do whatever it is that they that Really? They do. That's interesting, Chris. So you often see within businesses, certain departments can, that can actually be adversarial. It's a real thing that's, <laughs> that's still in business. Sometimes there's bonuses involved. Yeah, yeah. A sure. big, a big sure. organization. Big organization that gets sales targets and things like that. Now, what happens if you pitch to somebody and then that person doesn't buy it, but they buy from your company three months later? There's things like this. It's a... It, it, it's like it's one issue. There's other the back end. There's more back end stuff to connecting your systems and trying to make sure that you can track the same person over time, to that, that you want to give them a, a better experience. There are different frictions on different points, but I think one of them might be related to this idea of how do you resolve the accounting issues of making someone aware, getting product in front of somebody. That hadn't occurred to me, Chris, really. What you're talking about there, it's expectation, isn't it? I think expectation has shifted massively, I think, in particularly the retail space and the B2C especially. And I call that the Amazon effect. That's what they are doing. Everybody then measures every other business that they transact with against their Amazon experience. I order it today, it's here tomorrow. And if I order from if I order from someone that isn't Amazon, why have I got to wait three days? It's, it's not Amazon, but in people's minds, the expectation is that, all retail is the same. And is that putting a massive pressure onto particularly retail businesses in the B2C space to improve their game? Because that's the expectation is that they have to be like the big guys. They have to do what Amazon does and deliver that kind of level. If you don't, then you may lose customer. You may lose market share. Is that kind of a real thing? I think it's a real thing. I think it's related to what we talked about a little while ago, which is that what happens if you don't make any investments whatsoever? Yes, I was talking from a point of view of cost, but you can also think about it in this logistical terms as well. And they might pay more to get it from Amazon. <laughs> absolutely, know? yes, so, Abs- absolutely. You know, look, I'm going to be able to return it easily if I don't like it or whatever. So I think that in general, I think that's what the competitiveness part is. So Amazon is setting the bar here for this retail, home retail delivery type experience. And they're even working on predictive shipping now. Send it to you before you even order it. <laughs> that's, uh, I'll tell you, Chris, that's scary. That's really scary stuff. It is scary. Guess what? They applied for a patent on it something like six years ago already. Okay. Think about the bar that's being raised. It's not going, it's not sitting still. The bar is going up. And so that's why whatever it is that you do, you say, what are we going to be good at? How are we going to compete with this company that's out there that's quite advanced? in terms of these sort of digital skills and having all this backend that, that works really well. Do you tell the people you speak to, that's okay, but your business is 10 times smaller than Amazon. You may not have the resources to, to do that. You can't build the infrastructure that, that, that they have. So what do you do? You have to just be better at certain things within your pond, within your little pond. If you're a smaller business, just do what you do better. Pay attention to what the big guys are doing, but actually don't compete in, in that sense, in that, you know, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, don't try and do that because you'll fail. You'll throw a lot of money at the wall and none of it will stick. And that's not what you're about. You need to make those smart investments. So it seems to me that 
keep an eye on what these guys are doing, yeah? Uh, like you say, at some point, uh, Amazon will say, yep, your printer's about to run out of ink, and they'll fly a new printer cartridge in by, <laughs> by, by, by drone and drop it on my on my front lawn. That's coming. But that's not everyone. Yeah, That's not the vast... Right. That's 0.1% of the business out there is theirs. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, there's a cost there. We're all paying prime money for that kind of level of service. Whereas... 99% of businesses do not have that kind of subscription base that you pay for whatever it is to get delivered because they can't offer that because they don't have the infrastructure. So don't focus on that stuff because you can't compete. Focus on the stuff you can control. I think the point is you don't want to be worse on every single dimension. <laughs> yeah, be, you know, be, That's not a recipe for success. No, be so good at something. Point, yeah. So what is it that you're going to do that's, you know, that, that takes advantage of your skill set that you've got that then that you're actually providing something that's valuable that customers want. And again, that gets us back into this whole design thinking approach, which is you need to get out there and you need to talk to people and figure out what they want, how they want it for your own customer base and maybe for potential future customers. Try and figure out what they want and then see what you can do about meeting them in in that general direction rather than saying, oh, yes, I'm going to become the logistics, the logistics expert, compete with Amazon. That's pretty tough. But there should be something, there should be some value proposition that you can clearly identify that you can work on that builds on your skills and that builds on your digital skills as well. I think that's another element of this, which is that you're thinking about your whole digital strategy is what are the skills that we need? How, what kinds of basic infrastructure do we need to develop here? And then how can we build on that to become more efficient? And how can we then turn around and offer better products, services, or have a new business model that's producing for us, that works for us? I think that's the part that's tricky. I think so. Can we call it softer skills or start softer services? Anything that's outside of moving a thing from A to B that isn't logistics, right. you can do something quite interesting. You can be you know, better with customer service, more personalization, that kind of thing. These all can be delivered with with digital tools. And again, that it then speaks to how we then get into predictive analytics and how you can then be a better company by predicting what your customers will do next. Well, how that might get shot in the foot by the demise of Cookie and the and how the new digital strategies from coming out, coming out of the EU and the and we want to change GDPR and all the rest of it is it seems to be in the mix as well. But there's certain I think softer elements to your business that isn't logistics that you can certainly have a very good look at and improve massively. I, I think. I think what we're doing is we're moving in the medium term. You just need to get people's permission. And so it's not, you can't just harvest like you used to be able to do. And I think that's actually fairly reasonable. And in the longer term, I think we're moving toward a market for data where you actually have to pay people for data. You know, I think that's probably, but that, that's not going to happen in the next few years. But I think no, but I, I did see. Yeah, I, Chris, I, I did see something two or three years ago. I, I can't remember who the company was, but that was what it was. They were saying, your personal data, let's put a value on that. Yeah, let's let you sell that, literally sell it. It's something on your phone and you give a snippet of data to whoever and they pay you for that. Uh, they pay you for that information, but I can't remember who that was. I don't know if that ever flew, but I can see a scenario where that could happen in the future. But at the moment, it seems that kind of marketers had a heart attack when then they read that, that uh, cookies were disappearing. Mostly, right. I think, because they were harvesting, as you said, data pretty much automatically. They weren't doing any work. But post-cookie, right. guess what, guys? You're going to have to work a bit harder for my personal information. Come on. You've had it pretty good for the few years, but now you've got to work a bit harder <laughs> if you want my, inform my information. So it's not a case of it's Armageddon when it comes to marketing. That's not the case. It's a case of, guys, you, you've got to start working for a living. <laughs>
Yeah, they made a lot of money and they grew to a massive size of many of these companies on the backs of having free data from consumers. And I think that was before people knew what was going on. And then it turned out that this is, this is quite valuable information that they're capturing. And it seems a little unfair that, and again, there are data network effects going on here. They collect a lot of data and then they get better prediction and then it gets harder and harder to compete with them. <laughs> you yeah, know? that's right. So that's I think right. that, yeah, we need to put a stop to it. I'm not against these ideas, whatever they are. I'm not against the market for data or it could be something on your phone that just says, do you agree? I'm going to give your location out and I'm, I'm, you're going to get a dollar or whatever yep. for yep. every, that kind of know, thing. every yeah. time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. The, I think you make it frictionless, of course, then yeah, of course, who wouldn't? I think there's been a few websites where if you go to a certain site, you get reward points and then you can swap the own points for actual physical goods, points on the loyalty cards, etc. Loyalty is one of those things, it seems, when we talk about digital tools, can do a lot more than it does at the moment. At the moment, I'm just accruing, I don't know, Sainsbury's Nectar points, which I then swap for something on eBay or in Argo or wherever it is. But it's an interesting point where you could say, take those points and can I swap my Nectar points for some of your, your Tesco's points because I want something from Tesco's. We don't have a, a, we don't have that kind of, that kind of marketplace. But you can see in the future where data becomes this valuable commodity that I can choose to expose freely to whoever or not. And when you're talking about connecting businesses together with their, with their customers, then, um, that could certainly be an element that's in that strategy that, yeah, once there's an infrastructure for those kinds of ideas, then data becomes a very different beast. That's really interesting. Actually, I hadn't thought about that the fidelity points much, but I think that a lot of companies, it's really good. A lot of companies right now prohibit it. They'll say, oh, yeah, we, yeah. we reserve yeah. the right to cancel yeah. your whole account and nullify all your points if we find out that you're selling or bartering or anything or exchanging. But maybe at some point there'll be a marketplace for those things. They won't be able to stop or they'll just have to pay in cash because right now they could always devalue their, then they do not. I don't know. Oh yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, they could just yeah. wipe your points <laughs> tomorrow. Point. Yeah, they could be worth nothing or yeah, they get revalued to fractions of uh, fractions of a penny. But clearly loyalty is part of business strategy, absolutely. And it does connect businesses with a loyal customer base. You will think I have a, a loyalty card with that particular supermarket. So I, I'm kind of drawn to them because I will get something back, i.e. My, my points, which I can exchange for something else. So that's, that, that, that is a valid model, I think. And it's certainly part of a strategy going forward. I don't think you can ignore that. It's just going to morph into something probably more dynamic and more connected, oddly enough, where you might end up connecting these kind of strategies strategies and these kind of loyalty systems together. But you'd be very brave for two supermarkets to connect their, their loyalty together and exchange <laughs> that data. We're not there just yet. We're still yeah, all garden, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. What I wanted to finish really, Chris, was I guess to ask you where you see the future. When we've talked about connected business, what that means using digital tools. When you get your crystal ball out and have a look at the future, where do you think we're going to be? Do you think businesses will get a good handle on what transformation means from the sort of connected point of view. Is that something that we're clearly moving towards at, at speed or are, are those kind of transformative elements, are they still on, on the distant horizon? In my opinion, we were entering a new era. It might just be a survival bias. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, I think that companies that do nothing, unless it's a real hand artisan business or something like that, and even then, <laughs> how are you going to distribute your products? As we were discussing before, if you do nothing, I think you're in a bad position. So over time, what I feel is going to happen is that we're going to have 
new companies coming in, of course, they're going to be more digitally savvy and they're going to start out with a base of digital technologies. You could think of this like a fintech banking sector type things. Knowing the way that you open a bank account with a digital bank versus an in-person bank. And some of the banks, they have a lot of assets. They're not going to go into business tomorrow. <laughs> but over time, these sort of in this sort of uncompetitive business practices that we have are either going to be transformed inside companies or the companies themselves are going to be out of business because they're, because they're just being overtaken by a much better value proposition someplace else. And so that's going to usher in more digital savvy era and the survivors that are going to obviously be much more familiar with and comfortable with digital tools. And I think that we talked a little bit about the task automation. We're going to automate all the tasks that, that can be automated. And we're going to, that doesn't mean we're going to automate all the jobs away. We're just, but we're going to yes, shift a little indeed. bit more toward the value added that people have inside these companies. And I think that probably be a little bit more continuous. I mentioned before, like machine to machine communication. So there'll be a lot more sort of connected pieces of the value chain, let's just say, or even within an operation, like knowing what's going on, better, quicker responses, more agile businesses, and better connection with customers, understand what they're doing and how their needs are shifting in more like real time or closer to it than what we have now. So I feel like that's the, for me, that's the future. There, there will be more of a tech focus for businesses, but it's probably not because Partly it'll be because these companies are adopting more technology, but mostly because all the dinosaur businesses are going to be extinct in the next 15 years or something like that. You've been listening to a Silicon UK In Focus podcast. Keep up to date with the latest tech news and read in-depth features by subscribing to our newsletter. I'd like to thank Chris for taking the time to speak to Silicon UK. It's a goodbye from me, David Hull, and it's goodbye from Chris. Thanks again for having me. It was a great pleasure talking with you today. Thanks a lot.